I'm very lucky to be joined on Football CFB today by one of my favourite writers in football, and that is Mike Calvin. Mike, thank you for joining me. Yes, yeah, a pleasure, Mike. The first question I've got for you, very simple question, but quite long-winded, to be honest with you, and very broad, I'll admit that myself. Just describe your love of football and how that started for you. Well, I suppose it started for me uh, as a boy, um, as a ball boy, actually, following Watford. And it was a pretty nondescript lower division team. Um, they got uh, promoted um, one year um, to the second division, the old second division. And they played Liverpool in a FA Cup quarterfinal. And being a ball boy, you were part of the show. And, uh, you know, I used to, I had this, it was almost like my Magna Carta, my little pass in a, in a, a plastic um, uh, encasement. It was green cardboard pass, I can remember it. And uh, it allowed me into the inner sanctum, which was through the official team entrance. And we walked, so it was my stairway to heaven in reverse, basically. You walk down these steps, turn left, you know, the, the, the great and the good went straight on into the director's area. I turned left and then turned right at the next door and you went into the ball boys room, which is actually doubled as a laundry. And, uh, you know, I saw my kit and my kit was this old washed out tracksuit green. It was scratched like hell. You know, it was like a, like a penitence hair shirt. And, uh, we changed next door to the home dressing room and I could smell the liniment and you could hear the sort of muscle muffled cries. And there was a, uh, at the top of the, the room, there was like a frosted sunlight, uh, window where you could open it slightly and you'd hear the crowd and you'd hear, you know, you'd smell stuff, you know, you, you, not just liniment, you, you know, you get, you know, the other incense, which is like you, the burgers and all that sort of stuff. So I felt part of it. And in that game against Liverpool, uh, it, it was on a terrible, terrible pitch, sort of roll mud, but Watford beat Liverpool 1-0 uh, and they basically that caused the the breakup of the first uh, Bill Shankly team, and I, I I like to think I I deserved an assist for the goal because you know the ball came to me and I threw it back quickly and a a guy called Ray Lug, great name, uh, got took the throw in, took a re reverse um, a pass from a, a Scottish winner called Stuart Scullion, who would have been an international had he played with his head up. He was a fantastic player, but basically, you know, his crosses were, were are a lottery. Lug nutmegged the covering defender, put this cross in, and there was a, there was a, a, a guy that Watford had got for, for 50 quid from a, from a pub team called Barry Ending, who diving header scored the winning goal. And that day... I, you know, I looked around at that moment and behind me in the stands, there were people who climbed up on the side of the stand and they were holding onto it with one hand and doing this sort of semaphore of joy with the other. And the whole place was going nuts. So I, I, I saw there what the club meant to the community and that whole sort of like, you know, communal joy. I thought, wow, you know, this is something else. And then you see the other side of it because people always ask me why do I, why do I, why did I get into sports writing as opposed to anything else? And sport 
it, it was something actually that, that Pele told me later in, in life uh, when he was describing Maradona. He said, uh, the angel walks with the devil in terms of his character. But actually on that day, it meant that I saw all these people going absolutely berserk. But at the end of it, when we ran across the pitch to get to our little um, end, uh, exit, there was a Liverpool fan who had the full regalia on. He had like a, a donkey jacket, the, my, the type my dad used to wear, you know, when he went to work, he worked for the electricity board. And he was sagged against this metal fence. And you could hear all the badges on his long scarf scraping against the fence because he was in absolute floods of tears. He was sobbing that they'd lost. And that was the first time I was 11 that I'd ever seen a grown man cry. So you just thought, wow, this game, it just takes people over. And I, so I suppose from that moment, uh, I wanted to get involved with the game. Um, as I said, my dad was a, uh, he was a, a, a cable jointer for the electricity board. And he found two books uh, later that year, funnily enough, uh, in uh, an old house that he was doing. Um, one was, uh, it was an empty house. One was um, a glossary of the 1945 parliament, which was like Nye Bevan and all that, you know, birth of the NHS, which is pretty apposite as we're talking now. Um, and that sort of informed my political views, which are, you know, basically benevolent socialism, I suppose. But also there was a book called uh, uh, The Football Man by Arthur Hockcraft, which is still, I think, the best football book ever written. And that contained a line, which I'll paraphrase it. It was, you know, I am, I'm just a reporter trying to get to the heart of what is. And that inspired me. That's what I wanted to do. And that's where I suppose when I was, what, 12, I wanted to be a journo. I wanted to be a writer, a sports writer. And I suppose it's all gone on from there, really. You, you mentioned it's all gone on from there, and it certainly has in the sense that you started with your local paper and then things took off quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, I was really lucky. Um, I suppose in my career, I've done everything that people have told me not to do. So when I was on the local paper, um, you know, I had a, had a brilliant, uh, my first sports editor, a guy called Ollie Phillips. And he's, he's almost like a throwback figure because he, he stayed uh, reporting on Watford for 58 years before he retired. Uh, you know, because most people like myself moved on and, you know, I moved into Fleet Street very early when I was 19. So uh, I then went to a, an agency called Haters. Reg Hater was uh, an original sort of cricket agent, really. Uh, he was a reporter on the Press Association. He used to go and cover Ashes tours in Australia and, and take six weeks on the boat to get there. Um, so my first job when I was 19 was uh, ghostwriting Dennis Compton. And that was like sort of every week I had to go to like visit Valhalla, which was Elvino's in Fleet Street, these sort of old mahogany place. And the old boys, you know, the legends of the game used to go there. And, De and you know, Dennis, I'd say, Dennis, you got any ideas this week? And he said, no, it's, it's okay, old boy. I'm sure you do a great job. In other words, just, you know, I've got a bottle of claret to see to here, so um, just go and do the beast, you know, which I did. He's a fantastic bloke. And there I did about oh, probably 10 matches a week in, you know, at different levels. And you learn to take stuff in your stride, you know. Um, then I was, again, went to, on an international level, I, I became chief sports writer of a, of a 
a group of regional papers called Westminster Press, which is a really fancy title, but basically I was the only sports writer. Uh, but my job was to do all the major events for all those papers, about 15 evening papers and a couple of morning papers. So that was why when I was you know, 21, 22, I did my first Olympics in Moscow. Um, and you know, my first World Cup was 1982 um, in Spain, which uh, was, you know, it was, it is so different because now, players and managers are filtered through the whole PR blotting paper, really. It's bizarre to think now that when we arrived in Bilbao for, for that World Cup, we got a lift to our hotel by the, on the team bus and the England team bus. Uh, and I, I, I happened to sit next to Ray Wilkins and we became like, you know, friends throughout our life, really. So it's weird how that friendship group starts, you know, um, because, I, you know, I do say that you, you you live your life through the lives of your contemporaries in many ways because you grow old as they grow old, um, and you know hopefully you achieve as they achieve. So um, you know that was a, a different age, um, uh, and it enabled me to broaden my horizons. You know, it, I, it was it was daft stuff. You know, I'm in my study now where I, where I work, and I look up, and there's a photograph of me when I'm 21 talk uh, interviewing Muhammad Ali and that was in the middle of Park Lane he basically walked out from the Hilton at the bottom of Park Lane and stopped the traffic five lanes of traffic bang uh, and I just took that in my stride it's really weird because I suppose it might be a bit like my upbringing but I always felt I didn't feel nervous talking to people who were famous you know you can't get too much more famous than Ali can you uh, because they fascinated me as people and we go back to you know the, the, what I've always tried to write about is not so much what I call the forehands and backhands, the match reports, although you know obviously I had to do a lot of them. It's actually the humanity of the game, and I suppose that's what I try to do in my books, and you know obviously latterly in in in, in my in my journalistic career when I was um, you know chief sports writer, where you do all the major major events, but also as a columnist where you have to try and blend opinion with sensitivity and knowledge of not just the sport, but also the individuals within the sport. Something that interests me about yourself is, is the fact that you've mentioned it there, that you like to focus on the stories and the people and the characters rather than just, as you've said, the, the sheer skill involved, whether it's football, tennis, cricket, the Olympics. And, a few of your projects in recent years, as you know, have been made into films for BT. State of Play, absolutely incredible. And the reason I mention that film in particular is because it was very poignant. It was a film that made a lot of people think about where we are as a society, where we are as a footballing society, and the, the, the positives we've got and also the challenges we've got facing us. Obviously, we're in light of this COVID-19 situation. There's going to be a new landscape for society, never mind football, when we come out of this. How do you see the state of play changing when we come out of this? And will it, or do you think it will change? Yeah, I think it will change fundamentally. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you if you'd look at the magnitude of the sort of social earthquake that we're all living through at the moment, none of us have experienced that, you know, even an old, old git like me has never it, it, it had had this experience in my lifetime. 
you know, essentially, it's the most visceral experience that we've had as a community and as a society since warfare, since the Second World War. Football flourished after the Second World War. You know, there were huge crowds and it was almost part of the normalisation process. I'm, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable as we sit here where, you know, governments are talking about let's get football back so that we can boost the national mood, you know, June the 8th or whenever it's going to be. I just think it's too soon, especially when hundreds of, hundreds of people are dying each day. And I think it points to football's role and place in society as we speak. I think it's changed. You know, the football industry over the last few years has been overheated massively, both on a financial level and a philosophical level. So if you look at the finances, it's basically... Uh, it's been funded by huge TV contracts uh, and also, I think, a false belief in elitism because, you know, I, I sensed even before this that people were beginning to get fed up with a very um, narrow gauged Premier League where, you know, the biggest prizes could only be won by the biggest clubs. Now, OK, Leicester kicked kick that one into touch for a season but actually that was the wake-up call for the biggest clubs which was saying hang on you know the surfs are actually at our door here we better sort ourselves out football basically over the last couple of years has almost been living a lie in terms of its its self-styled aggrandizement you know there's a lot of falseness around the game that that i that i found um, almost that, that's why to be honest state of play I try to be as authentic as possible and relate it to where I've come from and you know the Watford thing you know the Watford experience of going and watch it as a kid and all that um, if you take you know some of the let, let's take as, a, as an example the Liverpool and Tottenham experiences in this Covid crisis where Liverpool you know as a kid um, I interviewed Bill Shankly just before he died in 81. And that, that was a mortifying experience for more of mine. You know, I don't like the modern journo who go, turns up at a press conference and asks for a selfie and all that stuff. I can't stand that. You know, you know, when I was growing up, we called them fans with typewriters. Well, it's gone on a bit from since then. And what I found with Shankly is that there was an authenticity to him. When you spoke to him, you know, this whole idea, you know, growing up in, 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 in the Fife coal fields, which are no longer there, you know, his home village, Glenbuck doesn't exist anymore. But there was, there, his voice, cut, to me, cuts through the ages. But equally, when you think about what Liverpool do with his legend, they do what football does and they monetize the legend. So in other words... Yeah, okay, we get all the socialist stuff and you know we'll we'll make it part of the PR strategy and the marketing plan. That furloughing decision suggested that it was false, that there was a degree of hypocrisy to it. And I found it really engaging and encouraging that the fans said, hang on a second. We actually believe in this stuff. We believe in the legend of Shankly. You've got a manager now, Jurgen Klopp, who is probably the modern equivalent of Shankly. 
So how can you marry that with this idea of, okay, we're a multi-million multi global corporation and we'll just cop a few quid off the government if we can. They changed their, they changed their, their tune in the way that Spurs did. And that was fan pressure. I thought that was quite significant because actually in this new age, and you're right, Callum, it will be new and it will be completely different. I think the fans probably have more, will have more influence than they've had for a long time simply because they hold the purse strings. Okay, television will continue to support and underpin the whole thing. But television's got its own challenge. If you think about it, you know, a global company like BT pay a billion pounds for, for European football rights. It's a very good operation, I think. But when you look at it, and you know, you speak to you know the top executives who make those type of decisions, the demographic of the audience is changing. A guy of I don't know, they'd say 25 and under, they don't watch 90 minutes football, or very few of them do anymore because attention spans are less, you know, when you're watching a game, you want to be tweeting, you want to be doing this and doing that. So they've had to change some of their strategy in terms of like, they've got the goals program, which I think is brilliant by the way. And, and I would watch that rather than the full game or I'd, I'd tape a full game that I wanted to watch and, and, and watch it later. But on the night, eight games, bang, 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 bang with good informed commentary by journos, by the way, who yeah. I think are a, an, an underestimated breed. I think we're, you know, with some, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty good at what we do. I, I, I would, I would contend. Um, but so the whole nature of coverage of the game has changed. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so the, the whole thing is changing. I think what has happened over the last few weeks you're right that people are now reevaluating the game. They're thinking, well, can I afford a season ticket? Can I, um, you know, can I be bothered to turn up at just another plastic stadium with plastic fans and plastic flags? I think there'll be a, a movement to maybe smaller clubs. I think a lot of small clubs will go, well, several small clubs will definitely go out of business because you can look at the ones you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out which ones are going to struggle. They're the ones who are always in the news because they can't pay their players anyway. Um, but smaller clubs, you know, clubs, I've, you know, I've just been speaking to some guys um, who do a podcast with Millwall and, and, you know, they wanted to talk to me about family and, and the book that I did with them where I was completely embedded. And I think a club like Millwall, which has a, as a, as a loyal fan base and really, you know, it sees beyond the, the ephemera of the game, which is, you know, promotion and relegation. It's there, it's their football club. They'll watch it, whatever happens, whatever league they're in, they'll watch it. And I think, I think clubs like that will flourish. And I think, um, you know, this whole idea of football has to mean more than a result at 10 to five on a Saturday or 10 to 10 on a Tuesday night, whatever it is. It has to mean something because um, ultimately watching football is a habit and people can get out of habits. That's very true. And something that I, I was talking about to, to Kieran Maguire recently was 
the the idea that you talked about fans that will follow their club regardless of the level they play at. Mm. When we come out of this situation, finances, as you've said, at the elite level in the game with TV money will be there. But as we've as we've both said, with lower league clubs, the, the, they don't get as much TV money, and they probably ticket sales and season tickets are king. If football has to be played behind closed doors until 2021, how do you think this is going to impact on clubs up and down the country? I, I think I think it will increase the alienation. You know, it's it's like saying, okay, uh, we're going to open the Royal Shakespeare Theatre on Tuesday, and we're going to have Macbeth, but we aren't going to have an audience. Well, so the, the actors will be top of their trade. They'll go through their motions. You know, you could probably um, film it. But where is the interaction between performer and spectator? You know, isn't, you know if you look at the arts, there's, there's always been, um, you know, a, a move to try and involve participants, you know, the audience as a participant in a play, let's say. With football, you know, football without a crowd will be a soulless experience and it will be it will be an expedience as well because basically the only reason they're going to do it is to make sure that they fulfill the season which i agree with entirely but they're going to do it for the wrong reasons which is they want to keep they want to they, they don't want to give the money back to the tv companies so that's where um the game i think will it, it, it will be a litmus test will i think there will be and I've spoken to a lot of people about this. I think there will be an initial, oh, thank God football's back and people will watch it. But I don't think they'll watch it as obsessively as they have done in recent years. You know, when people are watching, you know, every, every, every day with a Y in the name, they watch football. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. People are, are seeing through the, the hype of, you know, the Super Sunday. Every, every Sunday can't be... Super Sunday. Every football match that's on TV cannot be huge. So people are actually, you know, that there is a there is a, a sort of a falseness to, to the way football is marketed and thrown at people that maybe in the past couple of years they've been able to accept. But everyone's paused for breath now and they're gonna look at it and think, do I really need to watch football on a Thursday night? Or do I really want to watch football eight times a week? I think that probably people won't do so. I don't know, uh, and, and part of me selfishly, you know, hopes that they don't. But I think people will reevaluate it. We're all going to reevaluate our lives because we spent the last, you know, five or six weeks in lockdown thinking, well, how is the world going to look when we're able to do what we used to do without even thinking, um, and. Again, I, I do find the sort of rush to, to get the game on a little bit obscene. And I just, in my heart of hearts, I can't see football being staged with a crowd until next year. And if a week's a long time in politics, seven or eight months is an eternity in football and anything can change. That's very true. And, and the, the idea of behind closed doors football is something that, I, I totally agree with you. I think the rush for it at the moment is obscene. Understand they will get behind closed doors football on at some point, whether that's 
in the next couple of months or even an extended period, four or five months. I think behind closed doors, football will be great when it comes back at first because people will get caught up in the hype of football being back. But I have to be genuinely honest. I remember the last game I watched before football ended was the Manchester United game over in Lask in Austria. Mm. And it just isn't the same without a crowd there. No, no. I've covered a, a couple of games behind closed doors and it is a surreal experience. I, I did one, oh blimey, again, early 80s. Uh, uh, West Ham played Castilla, you know, Real Madrid's second team. And uh, I can't remember the circumstances, to be perfectly honest. I know there was some crowd trouble or whatever, but they had to uh, play behind closed doors at Upton Park. And it was surreal because you could hear uh the players you could hear especially the managers and coaches on the touchline and you realize what a load of tosh they do speak now and again <laughs> um and yeah it, it just was yeah it, it just was basically it was like an ice cream cornet without the ice cream you had the cornet and you know you might have had a, a flake in the top but there was no ice cream and so therefore it was well okay it filled a hole but frankly i didn't really enjoy it I totally agree. I think that's going to be the, the interesting thing. As I say, the, the, the initial hype will be great, but I think clubs, the Premier League especially, will know that marketing it when it's behind closed doors will be, will be different. And as you've said, that hype, that Super Sunday, that Super Saturday, whatever it may be, may have to be re-evaluated slightly. And the next thing I want to come on to and discuss with you is, we've spoken both to this man, Joey Barton, you wrote this incredible book with Joey. Um, I interviewed him and expected to get an hour of his time if I was lucky, which we would have been very grateful for. Six and a bit hours later, I had a full series of podcasts ready to go over the course of a week. What was your experience like working with Joey and how proud are you of the finished book? Because it's a book that's been well received by so many people, including myself. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, you, you know, the book went down well. It you know, won a few gongs and stuff like that, which is nice always. I always find um, co-writes apps. Uh, I almost put more of myself into the co-write than I do my own, my own books in a strange way. You know, I've been lucky that the football books that I've done have been really well received and, you know, got awards and all that sort of malarkey sold well, thankfully. Um, the books that I've done, as I've done four now. Um, I did uh, Gareth Thomas, who's the um, Wales and British Lion rugby captain. Uh, book about coming out very raw book um, and with Joe um, ver like, exactly like Gareth actually I basically said look here are my preconditions for doing the book and um, you know in Gareth's case we 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 it was a really sort of searing experience to the point that we did a, a, a chat we, we went to find the rock that he was going to jump from the cliff that he was going to jump from to commit suicide. And we actually found the rock and, and, and talked on that rock about 250 foot drop. And there was a guy basically who put himself out and he had such moral courage to talk about what he did in the way that he did. And, uh, it sounds trite me talking to you now, Callum like this, but you know, during that process, I said to Gareth, you know, blimey, if, if, if we get this right, we'll save people's lives. Uh, and so it sounds daft, but actually, 
we did a speaking tour after the book was published and we 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 met people who actually told us that you know there's one guy came up to us we were we were doing a gig in uh, just north of cardiff and this guy traveled from western supermare to tell us look um yeah like you i was on the cliff edge and he asked gareth what what went through your mind what was going through your mind when you were standing there deciding whether to jump uh and gareth said well actually i was i'd seen i had this mental image of my my mum and dad standing around my grave and this guy said uh yeah i was saying but it was my kids and then he was off and it, we realized at that moment that he'd never told anyone that and the book was the almost I suppose it was a catalyst for him to, to have some sort of closure on the whole thing. So that, so those, those books I think are, are important that you, you almost f force your subject to actually come to terms with himself or herself. So with Joe, one of my preconditions was that we went to prison together because I wanted to confront him with where he'd been, you know, where a lot of his friends had been and you know he, he particularly one of his best mates was there serving eight years for manslaughter drunken night out punched the policeman an off-duty policeman who he didn't you know didn't know he was a policeman um and uh, the the policeman tragically died um and joe was really open to talking about who he was and why he why he was who he is um and I'm sure you found it, Callum, that there's there is a there's a depth of character there that people don't appreciate because they just judge him by the stereotype, you know, Gobby Joe. And so um, also he was a voice of the game. It might be a voice that the game doesn't want to hear sometimes because it tells it a few home truths. But he is the voice of a pro who made the most of himself in everything that he's done in his life. You know, when you consider where he's come from, where he could have ended up, there is still a switch with Joe, uh, which, um, you know, does get um, flicked now and again. Um, but I found him a, a, a good guy. And the interesting thing I always found, I found him about him was the, the loyalty. He has, he has great loyalty to people around him. And I admire that in anyone. And um, it didn't surprise me that he went into management. Um, he only surprised me actually when he went to Rangers because, uh, and I hope the daily record have got their uh, tape recorders going now. But um, uh, basically when he phoned me uh, to say, look, I'm, uh, I'm gonna sign for Rangers tomorrow. I started laughing. I said, mate, that is the most Barton-esque thing I've ever heard. Are you sure? Because, you know, you're walking into a, an absolute asylum of a city when it comes to football. You're not going to be able to breathe. And he said, no, I'll be fine. And, and, uh, and I, over the last, over the next week or so, I thought, right, I'll try and rationalise this. The, the fans of both clubs in, in, in Glasgow I think they remind me a little bit of, of, of the fans I came across at Millwall where hugely passionate, they will demand everything of a player, a hundred percent. You know, if you give us a hundred percent, we'll give you it back. 
And uh, I thought Joe, uh, Joe would fit into that. But I think the dressing room culture that he walked into was poor. I think when you're a player, see, and, and again, you know, I don't want to be um, disrespectful or incendiary, but, you know, the, the level of, of Premier League football in Scotland, certainly the level of the team that, that he joined at Rangers, I guess if they'd have played in England, they would have been bottom half of the championship. But those players are playing in front of 50,000 absolutely passionate fans every week. And they, they caught the attitude of a top player who plays in front of 50,000 in, in the Premier League every week. And that's where Joe couldn't get his head around it, I think. But also... Joe being Joe, he's never taken silence as an option. And so he, he feels he have to, has to, to give. And sometimes people don't want to receive. And I suppose that's what happened there. It was, I wasn't entirely surprised it all crashed and burned. But um, he, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's interesting. But I, f I found it really interesting talking to him about his, his, um, his aspirations as a coach. There was a time where we were talking about him maybe going back to Marseille to, to coach in the academy to learn his trade. But he's, you know, he's got this uh, chance at Fleetwood and in this sort of you know, shuttered season that we've got at the moment, you know, they've still got an outside chance of, of, of being promoted from League One, which given the nature of the club, would be a great achievement. And um, sometimes, you know, players or people with flaws are pretty good at dealing with other people because they recognize flaws and they recognize themselves in other people. So, uh, and also, you know, as you'll, you'll have found out Callum, you can't bullshit him. No, he'll, no. he'll, he'll, he'll know, he'll, he'll, he'll know, uh, he'll, he'll you know, was it, you can't kid a kidder and football. I think he, he, he's got, He's got good antennae, and if a footballer's trying to make a shortcut, he'll find him out. So it'd be interesting if, we, when we look over his, his career in, say, the next 10 years, will he be able to temper his temperament to actually deal with the sort of players and the sort of individuals you need to deal with at the highest level, who basically, you know, a Premier League squad now, a leading top Premier League squad now, is essentially 25 chief executives of global corporations. And as a manager, you can't deal with those corporations with the honesty and, you know, the lacerating honesty that someone like Joe brings to the party. So it'll be interesting to see whether he can actually adapt to that. But... Um, no, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, as per usual, I, I, I've got a lot of time for Joe. I'm aware of his faults, uh, but I thought, and what I hoped to do in the book was contextualise not just his character, but his life, who he was, where he came from, why he was, as I said, who he is. Absolutely, and I think that the reason the book for myself, and, and, and as you know, it's one, one autobiography of the year, so it clearly resonated with a lot of people as well, was the fact that Joe was very honest. He, he mentioned the fact that with his upbringing, 
in the estate that he grew up in, it could have been quite easy for him to have been involved in a route where he went down and, and get involved in parts of society that we don't like to dwell on because that's something that was normalised in, in the area he was grown up in. And as you've said, people always point towards his flaws, which I acknowledge he has, he acknowledges as do you. But you don't play in the Premier League for so many years, be part of promotion winning teams, and then have a really good impact as a manager as he has so far. People will say, oh, he's not done anything yet. But he's on the way to doing something potentially. He's got a team who don't have the biggest budget competing in a league that is very competitive. And, and to stay on the line of management, Living on the Volcano, another one of your, of, of your books you've written, which I really enjoyed reading, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager. It's very relevant as we're talking about Joey here. You've spoken to many managers in your career. In the book, Brendan Rogers, Roberto Martinez, Alan Pardew, Eddie Howe, Sean Dyche, Carol Robinson, all very interesting characters in their own right. In terms of football management, in we talked about the challenge for Joey going forward if he gets to the elite level. How much does football managing, management fascinate you and what have you learned having, spoke, having spoken to many managers over the years? Um, it is a fashion business, Callum, isn't it? Uh, you know, sometimes your face fits and sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's also a hugely punishing lifestyle uh, which claims prisoners. And it's interesting, um, when um, the book came out, I got a call from a, um, a leading manager, no names, no pack drill, and he's not in the book, funny enough. And he said, he said, Mike, you, I read the book and I was almost reading my own life through the experiences of the other guys. And he told me his story, which was, he was so obsessed with the game that after each game, he'd go into his study and uh, he would Nick, two bottles of red wine, re-watching uh, re and obsessing over the DV, or the, you know, the, the tape of the game. And he said, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm driving my family away. I'm driving my wife away, but I can't stop myself. And, you know, as it happened, this guy did get a divorce the following year after 24 years of marriage. And that, I suppose we, we're back to, you know, the H word again, humanity. People see um, managers, because of the way the game's presented these days, it's all, it's all through the prism of a manager's personality or perceived personality. So you've got, the, they're almost cartoon figures, but actually, you know, cut these guys and they bleed. They've got families that they want to protect and some, you know, their kids get bullied in the play, playground because they just happen to do a particular job. They're under pressure from people probably don't understand the, the type of job that they do. They're under pressure most of all from themselves. So, you know, that book begins, I always like to try to, you know, it's an old journalistic maxim, you know, you know, grab them by the goodies in the, in the intro and, and run like hell for the end. I always try and start my books with a pretty stark image. And in that book, it was Martin Ling having electrodes planted onto his head um, for ECT treatment, um, you know, because of mental uh, health problems, suicidal thoughts, all that sort of stuff. And I sort of charted this, this guy's 
um, almost break well breakdown and then redemption. And I wanted to do that right at the start of the book because I wanted to tell people, look, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, Premier League manager X gets sacked, he walks off with X million pounds compensation. Oh, I'll do that. Well, actually, you, you've got to look at these guys as human beings and they do themselves some real damage, and but they do evolve. And, you know, you mentioned... Um, you know, Brendan Rogers in, in that. During that time, uh, you know, Brendan was at peak Brendan, David Brent, basically. And, you know, he told me this story about running around the streets and smelling the mints. And I just thought, oh, come on, mate, you've got so much about you. You don't need to do this. Um, and it's interesting. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and he, he He's because uh, I asked him, you know, how have you changed from the guy in the in the book? And and he sort of looked at me and said, uh, almost a little smile. He said, uh, "Well, let's put it like this: I've learned to listen more and to say less." Now, there's someone who was so close, so close at Liverpool, um, and almost was overlooked when he was sacked. Football management's about being in the right place at the right time, making the right choice at the right time. And by going to Celtic, club he had associations with as a kid and you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, he had a chance to rehabilitate himself. But in, 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 in a situation where basically, and again, with the greatest respect to other people in the league, you know, there were there. He was judged on on winning his matches against Rangers. Let's be honest. You know, the seven years and all that stuff that went on. He developed players, and when the chance came, I you know again, I'm dis, I can be dispassionate. Fans I know were upset about it and felt let down, but when I saw him go to Leicester, I just thought, mate, that's the perfect choice for you to make because it was the club whose identity was forged in adversity, you know, through the, through the, you know, the tragic death of, of, of the owner, um, Kuhn Vishai. It wanted a bit more of what it had, that, that title win, the Premier League title win. So the money was there, the vision was there, the players were there. Brendan has basically, I think, got a real chance to, it's almost like, you know, model 3.0 with, with Brendan this time. You've got the Liverpool version who built on Watford and getting sacked by Reading and Swansea. You've got the Celtic version who, you know, going up to, to see him very occasionally, he was adored there and he got the club. And then at Leicester, he's got this opportunity almost to have a, like a third life as a football manager. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how he gets on in the next couple of years. In a strange way, and we talked about it earlier, about the equalisation that would go on after, the, after this lockdown ends, a club like Leicester actually is in probably a better position than some of the biggest clubs, simply because the family, the ownership are hugely committed They've got enough money to throw at the issues. There's a young team there that 
can only get better because Brendan, I think, does excel coaching younger players. They could, you know, we, we, we always said, didn't we? We said in 2016, this will never happen again. Leicester will never win the Prem, uh, Premier League again. I'm not saying they will, but I think they've probably got a better chance in the next couple of years than they thought they would have. That's something that I think is a very good point to make. And something, again, on, on, on Brendan in particular and British coaches, you've got Brendan Rodgers, you've got Sean Dice, you've got Eddie Howe. Very highly rated. Chris Wilder has, has done a fantastic job this season with Sheffield United as well. In terms of British managers, and we've heard all the arguments over the years of foreign coaches that are in the vogue and a British manager struggles to get a job at one of the so-called elite clubs, whether that be in the Premier League or abroad. Do you think whether what like Chris Wilder's doing, Sean Dyche is doing, I know Eddie Howe, you could say Bournemouth have had a slight dip this season, do you think the work of these guys shown that they can compete at the top level and, and compete with managers who are from abroad? Do you think there's a chance that we'll see a British coach get one of these big jobs within the next five years or so? Oh, that's you know, that's a, a multi-million pound question, isn't it, really? Um, sadly, I think the people who make those type of decisions have got no feel for football. You know, they've got a feel for numbers. And... So they probably will be um, blinded by stardust to a degree. Whether they should appoint someone like uh, Chris Wilder or Sean Dyche, I think is, is, is inescapable. Yes, they should. Um, you know, if we take them individually, um, I find Sean um, a really intelligent guy. Okay, he's got this stereotype of of, you know, the, the bouncer outside the nightclub, you know, he's, he's, he's got the shaven head and all that. And he plays up to that to a degree. He's a really intelligent guy. And again, there's that loyalty factor. If you see him with his mates, they're all the mates that he had when he was a, a kid in Corby, you know, which is, um, you know, a sort of a, a, a town, a, a fading town, a steel town, you know, with a big Scottish diaspora. Um, he knows what he's about. He's building a football club from the, t from the bottom upwards. Uh, he has very, very strong principles. Um, what's the phrase that he uses? Uh, maxim maximum effort is the minimum requirement. And I think, you know, that's again, that's a guy who's grounded. He, in a way, you know, after Arsene Wenger left and Sir Alex retired, He's probably the last sort of dynastic manager who's what been there seven and a half years. He's built that club, as I said, from the bottom upwards. He's involved in all the decisions, be it an academy decision or be it a, a new training ground decision, all that stuff. And I've talked to him about this in terms of, look, are you a prisoner of your own perceived personality? You know, this whole thing about, Oh yeah, well, he'll, he'll, you know, they'll be well drilled, and you know, they they won't concede many, but they won't score many, and you know, basically, you'll bore people to death, and we can't, we want eventual, or you want pizzazz. Well, actually, he made the point. Look, when I when I do my job, I do my job in the in the in the in the perspective of that particular football club. 
It doesn't mean to say I'll do the same job I did at Burnley, and he didn't make this analogy, but if I went to Barcelona, you know, it would be, I'd be a different coach because I'd have to be. I'd have different types of players, different types of sort of social relevance and all that sort of stuff. I think he's a hugely uh, impressive bloke. And had I been Everton, I'd have, I'd have walked down to um, Burnley to give him the job. I, I think he would have done a fantastic job and he would have got the club perfectly. If we look at um, uh, Chris Wilder, um, funny enough, my son worked for him. My son's a, a scout. Uh, uh, now at uh, just, just joined Middlesbrough from Norwich. Uh, to uh, look at their their structure, he worked with him at, as, as a, a very very young um, analyst at Northampton, who were bottom of the second division. Um, he took over. Chris took over from uh, Wild um, uh, Aidy Boothroyd. He was someone who, in those days, was pretty dismissive of science. Scout, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't, because I, my son was an analyst as well. I don't need that, you know. I can see a player and all that sort of stuff. And he went, you know, he was a product, you know, we're all products of our environment, aren't we? So he was in football terms, the product of his environment. He, he devoted six years of his life to Halifax town, a club which went out of business, went bust. When he was at Northampton, um, he was unpaid for three months. And when he went to supermarket checkout, they refused his credit card. So he's there with, you know, a load of, load of groceries, embarrassed in front of everyone because they're basically saying, well, that's a hooky card. We can't, we can't let you through. He also has channeled that sense of belonging, which I think is a really important part of football. And, and you know, the fact that he was a player for Sheffield United, he was a fan, now he's the manager, he gets the football club and he uses the, the natural underestimated assets of that football club, which are one, it's heritage, two, it's the nature of its ground. It's not one of these, you know, Lego stadiums that we see being sprung up there all over the place. It's a proper football ground where it generates its own intensity. The fans are part of the experience at Sheffield United. And I think it's helped them, um, you know, in this season. He's also a hell of a tactician. And he thinks through managers, uh, he, sorry, th he thinks through matches. He's, I think he's not lost the common, common touch. Essentially, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and, uh, he was laughing because I was saying, well, look, you know, how are you dealing with this? You know, because, you know, you're a training going guy, you know, what the hell are you doing with yourself? And he was saying, yeah, you know, we've all, what he did, he put all his players in groups of three or four and they had individual um, sessions with, you know, the various staff. But, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I am missing it because it's been, you know, it's my life basically. And uh, we were talking about the sort of nature of the club that he wanted. And he said, yeah, in the Premier League, he said, I've instituted fines. And what he, he said, he was laughing as he told me, he said, I fine the players in the tunnel. If, if they acknowledge the other team in the tunnel before the game, I'll fine them. Because 
it's, look, you know, you want to go out there and rip the, the other guy's head off. He says, I can't get my head around this Premier League sort of Champions League theory where, or not theory, but practice where you get players from other things, giving them a hug and all that, and, you know, high-fiving their, their opponents. He says, I'm not having any of that. And I loved him for that because there's an old school element to Chris, which I think uh, has been, a, you know, the proverbial breath of fresh air, isn't it? And it's interesting, I was talking to some guys this morning uh, about Chris, and uh, we came to the conclusion that he'd make a brilliant England manager um, because he wouldn't be this sort of Mike Bassett, Bassett figure, you know. It, he knows what he's talking about, and I think he could grow into that job perfectly. And also the managers recognise what, what a job he's done. You know, last season in promotion, he was the LMA manager of the year. And that's a, you know, that is the accolade that you get from your peers you know, if you're a manager. And it's interesting, you know, would he be the, the LMA manager of the year this year? Now, you know, obviously Jurgen Klopp's got a huge shout at that, but you could make a case for him winning it again. So that tells you how good he is. And, you know, frankly, you know, I think there's been so much money wasted on foreign coaches because they're ephemeral. They're here. Some of them are here. Like Pellegrini was on a pension plan with West Ham, seven million quid a year for doing what? Contributing what to the football club? Someone like Chris or Sean Dyche, Eddie Howe, they actually create the club. These guys basically plunder the club. They don't give anything back. There's no lasting impact. So that's why I think, you know, and I'm not denigrating the, you know, the impact of great foreign coaches because, you know, some, well, Klopp's are the example, isn't he? But, you know, I'm a great believer in English talent and English coaches. And, and I'm not a little Englander, but I do think there are some guys who deserve a greater go at things. One of the, one of the beauties about doing the management book um, living on the volcano was that you know again quite gratifyingly all the managers read it and funnily enough even as I was doing the research process I'd go and see a guy and he said oh you uh, you saw that you know I hear you were with so and so last week what was he talking about what's his chapter going to be on you know and yeah, so there were guys that I, I remember going to see the Cowley brothers for the for fun of for I think it was State of Play and um they were they were in their, their their office at Lincoln at the time, and you know it was a typical football office. You know there was some really dodgy, smelly kit in the corner, and the the Adidas Mundials were were all over the floor, and there was mud everywhere. And they were eating tea and toast before training, all that stuff, which I love. But there was a real intensity and intelligence to to Danny and his brother, and. I just thought these guys deserve a bigger stage. Now they've got it at Huddersfield. Why can't guys like that get the chance they deserve at the Premier League? And we've got to basically stop regarding football management as the fashion business that I talked about a little while earlier. Because there's some pretty good guys who aren't getting their due. Well, absolutely. I think the, the, the thing that's 
well known in, in sort of English football, as you know yourself, you've talked about it on the, the Football Writers podcast as well. For so many British-based managers to get the go in the Premier League, they've had to be promoted there. You look at Chris, you look at Sean, you look at Eddie. These, they, those are the examples of get even Brendan, he had to take Swansea there at the time to then get the chance to build on and grow. Whereas, as you've said, if the Cowley brothers do a fantastic job at Huddersfield, what's stopping a Premier League club going for them? Why do they? Why is it a case of they have to then earn the promotion before they can be recognised as being so-called Premier League class? It's something that I totally agree with you. I think hopefully this situation is not something that we wanted to happen, but there's going to be a lot of re-evaluation after this. And just maybe clubs will re-evaluate that managerial position because, as you've said, if you're West Ham United after this crisis, I know they've got David Moyes at the moment, but would you be willing to pay £7 million for a Pellegrini-type manager when you could get someone hungry, fresh, innovative for probably half that or less than half that who might even take the club on further? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting to see what this sort of generation of new managers do, how their career paths go. You know, we've talked about Joe. Um, you know, Frank Lampard was um, uh, in uh, State of Play with us. And I found Frank, Frank's a really interesting guy because, uh, you know, we go back quite a way. Uh, we had a massive falling out. Um, I did a column where, where he, was a, he was a player at Chelsea. And at the time, I think he was asking for 140 grand a week. And I did this basically, I did this column. It was, it was pretty provocative, to be honest. But uh, I, I worked out how many nurses you could get for 140 grand a week and how many doctors and all that sort of stuff. Pretty, you know, standard issue, um, you know, declaration of war, really. And, he, and it was a Sunday paper and he phoned me up on the Sunday morning, and which I really respected. Okay, he's saying, Mike, why do you do that? I said, well, I believed in it. And he said, well, Mike, I'm only trying to put bread on my table. I said, mate, you've got a bloody big table. And he said, well, I've, you've upset my, my, my sister. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I apologise for that. And, but anyway, you know, from the initial sort of rant, where we were a bit pretty much shouting at one another, <laughs> we calmed down and we started to talk about the game and what it does to people. And this is not, not that long after I'd been through the Millwall experience. And he, he'd read that book and was fascinated by it. And... I thought then, one, I respected him for phoning me up to put his point of view, because most people don't do that. And secondly, he saw my, you know, didn't agree with everything I said, far from it, but he saw my point of view. And I just thought this guy has got a chance. I always thought from that moment he'd be a manager because he was comfortable with uh, confrontation, which you have to be as a manager. He was articulate, stated his case well. And then, you know, if you look at him as a player, he was, a, he was, a, he was he again, a bit like Joe, he made exactly, he made the most of himself. I love players who spent, go the extra yard on the training ground. Frank did that. Um, I, one of my favourite memories was, I, I went to uh, see uh, Gabriel Battistuta in Italy at Fiorentina, and he kept me waiting for three hours in the rain and he got the apprentices to um, get some mannequins. And he basically practiced free kicks 
for three hours in the pouring rain where the where the wall was 10 yards nine yards eight yards 12 yards and it was just fascinating watching a guy commit to his craft and frank did that but he was also really good politically but he was brilliant with people and i think that's what's come on you know in his management he surprised a lot of people at chelsea this season he's got an empathy with the young player that you see in the way that say for instance you know gareth southgate who i've known for you know donkey's years he's got that same empathetic approach uh, because you're dealing again with people you're not dealing with automatons you're dealing with uh, guys who've got insecurities you've got guys who have got people whispering in their ears the younger manager like frank knows that because they've been through that very recently so i think i think he'll do very well uh be interesting to see how steve gerrard gets on um I uh, did Stephen um, did some work with Stephen for No Hunger in Paradise when he was uh, at that stage um, at the uh, Liverpool Academy as the under 18s coach. And again, what struck me was there was a guy committed to learning his craft. Um, and, and, you know, he was getting in seven o'clock in the morning to plan his sessions almost working with an intensity that he didn't have as a player. No, no I, I'll rephrase that. He had the intensity of the player uh, as a player, but this was a different type of intensity. He was, he was worrying about his sessions. You know, he was worrying about whether his kids were, you know, the, the kids that he was playing under, you know, did they have the right attitude? Were they okay at home? Did they have any personal problems? All that stuff. And again, there is a newer breed of manager who get it that actually it's not about players it's about people the players are people and i think it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years we've reached the stage in football where in terms of physiology we pretty much reached the limit in terms of understanding the human body there's the game has obviously changed it's quicker it's more dynamic it, it requires you know, greater muscularity, greater uh, intensity, greater acceleration speeds over short distances, all that sort of stuff. The next, the next frontier is the mind. There needs to be an acceptance of football is a highly mental game as well as a physical game. And the younger coaches, I think, get it. They get that. And uh, it will be interesting to see how they develop the sort of holistic programs that I think will come into vogue in the next few years. I find it really interesting. I think Graham Potter at Brighton's a really interesting guy where, you know, he was in Sweden and no one really noticed him, but he was doing some extraordinary stuff there. He was, he was basically getting his players to perform Swan Lake in front of audiences just to see how they dealt with, you know, a different, you know, experience and pressure. Um, you know, he's interesting. He, you know, the Brighton's an interesting football club because, you know, they've given him a five-year contract because, as I understand it, Everton was sniffing around him. Um, and you've got Dan Ashworth, who did a good job at the FA there in that overarching sporting director role, which will become absolutely key over the next few years. And I get the impression that Graham Potter will actually emerge as a really important manager over the next few years. 
Um, he's got to keep Brighton up, of course. But if you look at the way he does his job, it's really interesting. So it's people like him, I think Stephen at, at Rangers, you know, he's finding it difficult because, you know, as we spoke earlier about Joe, you know, the, the, that, the goldfish bowl there is, is too hot to touch sometimes. And I think he's finding that. And his frustrations I've seen come out a bit recently. Because um, it was interesting. I thought they got themselves into position to make a challenge to, to Celtic. Then they fell off a bit. Now, again, is that part of the culture within that group? And some of those groups were there when Joe was there? I don't know. Because uh, I haven't seen um, Rangers recently. But it's a really um, interesting way. It's, it's great proving ground. And, you know, the, you know, the narrative is that eventually Stephen will go back to Liverpool after, after Klopp. Now, that's too neat, I think. Football doesn't do that, does it, really? It would be great if it did happen. Um, but I think overall, the younger coaches um, have got a chance to reset the agenda over the next couple of years. I think so too, and and something that I want to talk about, it's not just the younger coaches, but the younger players. No Hunger in Paradise, great book, great documentary, um, really exploring the challenges within especially academy football. I mean, some of the, the wages that, we, that we're talking about in that documentary for academy players who have never been near a first team are just absolutely insane. I know Craig Bellamy um, was very, very open about that as well. However, somebody that gives me hope, and of course I'm biased, you're going to say I'm biased, is, is Billy Gilmore. Just how impressed have you been with him so far? Because he just looks like a young player who has got a great attitude, a, 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 a hunger to develop, and then a manager, as we've talked about with Frank, a manager who clearly not only believes in him, but young talent as well. Yeah, you, you get when you, when you do a book like No Hunger you get a load of names thrown at you. And uh, actually it was the same for the nowhere men when the, the book on scouting that I did. Uh, there are so many names that you never hear of again. Now they've got talent, those kids, but they haven't got the attitude. And um, the one thing that struck me about Billy Gilmore, you know, I'd, I'd heard about him uh, as a, as a young player at Rangers. Um, you know, I think he was 15 when he came down. I think something yep. like that. Um, and it's interesting, there's, there's a scout that I know who is, uh, I think, probably the most knowledgeable man on football uh, that I've ever experienced. And he works for Barcelona. He, he, he's, he's their top sort of scout at youth level. And he picked up, his name's, his name's Tommy. He's very, very secretive, so I won't, I won't give too much away about him. But he'd heard of Billy Gilmore before any English scout that I knew of. And he used to come up to Scotland and watch him in like indoor tournaments uh, when he was like 12. And he, and he basically was trying to get Barcelona to sign him then. Um, it was no surprise um, to Frank Dampard that he went into that game and it was just like, okay, I belong here. And it's interesting, the really good ones announce themselves in strange ways. And he just basically went in there and it was, I think Roy Keane was, was one of the pundits at the time. And yeah. he, he basically yeah. said, look, you know, I, I've forgotten this kid's making his debut. He's so good. And it's lovely to see that. It's, it's lovely to see someone 
surviving and thriving in what is a pretty inhuman process because you know i found a lot of the no hunger experience pretty soul destroying to be honest because you see parents you know willfully commoditizing their kids you see entire families uh, subjugated to the you know to the golden child who's who's playing football and so you know i used to go to academy matches and there'd be entire families on the touchline you know little jimmy would be playing you know for whatever team uh, and he would be the meal ticket for the future and so his brothers and his sisters you know from you know a year old to 15 or whatever they were there because he was there they were at training because he was at training. The whole family was governed by the by the progress of the kid. That's inhuman pressure to put on someone. You know, imagine, you know, you're 13 years old. You know, uh, you know I remember Sean Dice saying to me, look, you know, some of the money, the money that some of these 13-year-old kids were being offered was life-changing, was life-confirming, was, you know, it was security for life. Now, that would do my head in at 23 you're giving you know you, you're, you're enticing that kid with that sort of money life-changing money become a millionaire when you're 13 what's all that about you know that is that is that's obscene i'm sorry um i understand that football is a business but it's got a duty of care which it basically it, it ignores and it ignores it it's peril because you see you see the casualties quite literally you know I, I saw some terrible cases of of kids who were destroyed by the process and frankly it's not worth it it's a game it's nothing more than that and you know when i see some parents you know they're 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 vultures basically and i don't like it i really don't like it and you know my son went through the process um you know fortunately he got to 16 and realized he wasn't gonna be quite good enough so went to court you know went to went to uni got his coaching badges scouted part-time for uh, for ken for ken jacket um when he was 17 16 17 you know qualified as an analyst he's now got a, a, a scouting career in football very few people want to give the dream up and it gives them up and i think that's you know that's heartbreaking to see callum it really is absolutely the the challenges in that film as well as the book just highlight all of that and and you just when you watch it you think something that always interests me is we've all known people or who were great at football who had all the talent but for whatever reason whether it's an injury or an attitude problem or whatever don't make it and i think a lot of the time we forget that there's so many young boys and young girls who've got immense talent who think who build themselves up with this tunnel vision of I'm going to be a player, and then it doesn't happen, and the mental challenges that brings as well. Um, something I'm interested to also talk to you about is yourself, Mike. In terms of you as a player, what position did you play? Did you ever have a chance of a career in the game? Uh, only as a clown. Um, I yeah, I was a really really bad centre half, like really bad, um, and. Uh, 
I worked out very, very early in the Watford's, Watford's sort of youth league, the Watford Sunday league, uh, that I was never going to be a pro. You know, I was, I was pretty terrible. Um, you know, I enjoyed it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my, my highest level in football was the fifth division of the Watford Sunday league uh, in probably one of the worst pub teams of all time. But uh, yeah, I, I much prefer, I thank God I, I knew my way around an alphabet. I know an alphabet far better than I know a penalty area from a defender because I was crap, basically. But, you know, that's part of it, isn't it? I, you, you actually, if you ask a lot of journos, there are a lot of, there are a lot of frustrated players there. Um, and I do, get, I do get it when players say, oh, well, you've never played the game, you don't know it. Well, I understand why they say that, but it's absolute nonsense because I know aspects of the game that they've not even thought about because I do what I do. You know, I look at people and, and I see how the game relates, you know, the business of the game relates to the individuals within it. You know, I've, I've probably watched, God, because I'm such an old git, maybe what, two and a half thousand games over my life, two and a half, three thousand games. And, you know, I, I would have to be pretty dense if I didn't pick up something. And, you know, instinctively, it is interesting. You know, I know talent. Like, I knew Deli Alley was a player uh, when I saw him for the first time. And that was when he was playing for MK Dons. Um, it was when I was doing the manager's book. And I went to see uh, A.D. Boothroyd at Northampton. And they were playing against... Um, MK Dons and Carl Robinson and uh, I was in the dressing room with AD beforehand with Northampton guys and basically he was saying this kid's playing against you volley him over the stand just basically attack him so all these sort of hairy backed lower league pros went out and they tried to you know live up to that expectation and Delhi was in the middle and I heard him because I was watching the game from the bench he was laughing. He was laughing at these players. And, and he came over uh, to, to in front of the bench and said to, and said to um, AD, he said, you've got to turn up and try harder. And then ran away giggling to himself. And I thought, wow, this kid's got something about him. Now. And I, I went to see Carl quite uh, soon after that. And he called him over. Uh, and he was, he was a, he was a t typical cocky kid. And he, he had some chewing gum. And he spat his chewing gum up in the air and he controlled it on his thigh. It fell down to his right foot. He flicked it to his left foot. He then flicked it up and he, put the, he got the chewing gum back in his mouth and giggled. And I thought, this is a kid who's got childish glee in his talent. And also, he then, when they were doing a corner drill. And uh, we had, I had a camera crew with me at the time. And... Uh, there was, a, there was a near post corner came in and he made an angle run to the near post and he got up really high and he did a, a sort of a, a back heeled flick into the postage stamp on the far corner of the net. It was just a ridiculous goal. And I just went, whoa, whoa, what is that about? And uh, he came down, he came running, came running around the net after he said, do you get it? Do you get it? Get it? Yeah, boys, because he saw the camera. And actually... The bizarre thing is we didn't because the cameraman was getting all arty at that because the, the sun was beginning to go down and that the, the MK Don's training ground for some bizarre reason had an old cricket net. So the sun was like going through the, the you know, this sort of ragged cricket net. So, he, you know, 
the cameraman thought he was Picasso or something, you know. So he was getting all that, and so they missed the, they missed that money shot of of, of Delhi scoring a goal. So I find it really interesting how he's developed, and you know he's going through growing pains, and he has done in the last couple of years, because he has been subjected to. You know, these kids basically grow up in front of our eyes, and they grow up in front of our eyes in front of a lot of people who want them to fail, who are looking for them to fail, and that's an unhealthy aspect for our society, I suppose. Envy. Um, you know, the whole way that football has been seduced and then cheapened and uh, embittered by social media. You know, you look at, you know, the, the way that that has changed the way we talk about a game is, is, is terrible. So, yeah, look, you know, I, I, my instinct is always to give a young player, cut him some slack because, listen, you know, Callum... When you were a kid, you made some bad choices. You, you know, I did some stupid stuff, but I was a kid and no one knew about it. If a footballer does that and he's 23, well, everyone knows about it. And I think sometimes that's unfair. Totally agree. And I just want to say it's been a fascinating chat so far. The, the last question I've got for you, Mike, is what can we look forward to from yourself in the future? You've got the Football Writers Podcast, which is weekly. I really enjoy listening to that. But in terms of books, have we got any other books on the way? Is there another BT Sports film in the future as well? Uh, we're kicking around a couple of ideas in terms of films. Um, I've done a couple of manager interviews uh, and I've got a couple more lined up. Um, perhaps doing a podcast, sort of long, long uh, interviews with managers. Um, we're looking, um, publishing has been blown up by by yeah. the whole yeah. system. Um, I My next co-write was with a, um, the old England rugby captain, well, not old, um, recent England rugby captain, Dylan Hartley. Um, actually, Joe, Joe was, uh, Joe's desperate to read that one because it, it, in a way they're quite similar characters in terms of, you know, Dylan was banned for 60 weeks in total, but he's a really interesting guy. So people judge him on stereotypes in the way that they judge Joe. Uh, that book was due to come out in a couple of weeks, but that's been put back to September, September the 3rd, I think. Um, and a golf book, uh, the paperback of, of my golf book, uh, Mind Game, which I looked at the, um, you know, the mental side of, of golf with the top players. And, and, and I, I basically was, you know, behind the scenes at the Ryder Cup, the last Ryder Cup. Um, that was fascinating, the, the paperback of that now, uh, is going to come out in October. I'm kicking around an idea at the moment, which is sort of lockdown related, you know, looking at, at football, uh, why will I, why will I fall in love with football again? Because I did go through a stage and it, it's, it relates a bit to, you know, the sort of themes we touched, we touched on with no hunger where I got a call, um, from a guy who worked in, in player welfare um a few months ago turn of the year and um he told me a story about a player that he'd been dealing with over the last uh, previous sort of 18 months i mean like 18 months two years um he'd been released this lad from a premier league club uh, at the end of his scholarship uh, which is a huge blow for any kid and so the dream dies essentially didn't couldn't get another club to take him up so 
dream one died. He then went to um, the States, got himself a scholarship, uh, was doing well in college. Um, so dream number two was alive until his mother, you know, sadly was an alcoholic and um, she was on it all the time. Please come home, please come home, please come and look after me. And being a, a good lad and, you know, dutiful son, he did so, came home and found that um, she was suffering from terminal cancer and it was too much for him. Two dreams had gone. He had that. Um, uh, he attempted to commit suicide. And, um, you know, my friend said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, actually, you know, of course I'm shocked by the story and the nature of a boy's pain like that. I can't imagine what he went through. But am I surprised? No, I'm not. And that really, over the next couple of days, that really sort of did my head in to a degree. I thought, blimey, you know, are you so used to football's casual cruelty that you're not surprised at something like that? Uh, and, it, and it put me off football, to be honest. I thought, blimey, this is, this is just not, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. Um, so um, from that time, I, you know, I thought, right, okay. And I had been sort of looking outside football. Um, you know, I, so I did my golf book. Uh, I've done rugby. I did a, a, a cricket book with um, Alistair Cook. Um, and I wanted to come back to football. But I want to come back to football as almost... A new convert again you know so i'm basically coming i'm sort of i've done a few sample chapters uh looking at uh, through the prism of what i've experienced you know throughout my career what are the things that make me love football what are the who are the people where are the places what are the emotions what are the memories um so i'm sort of kicking around that in my head at the moment and uh if I get a few more words down on paper, um, we'll see if anyone is going to be up for publishing it. I don't know at the moment, but that's that's one thing that I've got in my head. And it's it's funny, you know, it's a bizarre thing to probably say, but books tend to write themselves. Because I will start off with a plan to write a book and I'm going to go that way. And all of a sudden you just do that and you go that way or you go that way, you know. Um, so, yeah, don't know where the journey will end up, but uh, hopefully I'll have a beer at the end of it. Well, it sounds absolutely exciting anyway, and I look forward to reading it, mate. Thanks for joining me. That's a pleasure, mate. Pleasure. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song